Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be here. And Father, for those who may even yet be on their way and contending, Father, with uh, the difficulties of the day, we ask, Father, that your grace would be upon them as well, that you would clear their path and bring them here, Father, as quickly as you may. Father, for those gathered, we thank you for the Spirit that lives among us and for the chance, Father, to gather in your name and to be encouraged by one another and to seek your face through your word and to know your presence is with us and your teacher is with us as always ready to do his work in our hearts. Thank you, Father, for all those mercies and for the provision of a building to make this room or to make this meeting uh, possible, Father. And now, Father, as we turn our attention to you and to your word, um, I pray for a pouring out of the Holy Spirit on each of us. I pray, Father, that you would uh, break through those distractions that occupy our minds even now as we uh, pray in this moment. I pray, Father, you begin to prepare us for your teaching and you would uh, put aside those cares that we may have brought in here. Father, perhaps there's been teaching in the past that has misled us at times according to our best efforts to learn your word, but perhaps tonight, Father, we will uh, uh, be better suited to learning. You will be uh, able to work with us, Father, as our heart is open, our mind is open. I pray, Father, that... uh, As a teacher, I would be well prepared and uh, ready to be led by the Holy Spirit. Just in all that goes into being available to teach and to learn, I pray, Father, that we would yield to you. And then, Father, as the truth comes upon us, give us a heart and a courage to make use of it in some way that glorifies you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, last week, I'll give you a quick reminder for last week, if nothing more, at least to uh, lead into tonight. Last week... As I said, we studied that remarkable parable of the unrighteous manager. And we saw Jesus lecturing in that parable and and in the verses that surrounded it on the true purpose of money uh, and on the way uh, to store up treasure in heaven. That was the fundamental lesson of that parable. But then following the teaching, we saw in the couple of verses I read after the parable itself, we saw the Pharisees begin their usual carping, their usual grumbling, which prompted Jesus to respond that they were men who justified themselves in the sight of other men. And they made themselves look holy and righteous in how they behaved. And yet their true heart was known by God and he knew that they were not men of faith, that they were not men uh, who kept to the outer appearance on the inside, but rather were hypocrites. They had no true righteousness, in other words, before God because they'd never confessed their sins, they'd never repented. So these are the hearts of these men. We've heard this over and over again. And now this chapter is going to continue in the same pattern that Luke has basically established in the last few chapters as we've studied. Number one, most of the material in this chapter is unique to Luke, including the parable we're going to study tonight, the story we're going to study tonight. Secondly, we're going to see Luke again showing how Jesus keeps alternating between teaching the disciples in a discipleship way, in a a manner designed to prepare them for what they're going to do, and to effectively warn them off some of the traps and some of the pitfalls that come in ministry, trying to develop in their mind a picture of what it means to be a minister of the gospel that's different, fundamentally different than the picture of what it meant to be a man of God in their day, the picture set forth by these Pharisees, for example. So he's got to separate in their mind what it means to be a man of God from what they've seen exemplified in the men of their day. And then alternating between that and the other side of the story, which is Jesus taking the Pharisees to task and showing them to be who they really are. That's the two-sided message that seems to come back and forth as Luke goes through his narrative here. Jesus teaching to one hand and scolding to the Pharisees on the other hand. But even in the scolding, of course, what he's doing is helping teach the disciples to discern the difference between true godly men and hypocrites. And that's where we go now next in chapter 16. Jesus transitioning here. Uh, relatively smoothly, although it may not appear as such at first, he transitions smoothly from his topic of money and how to spend money the right way into another illustration, one that's going to expose the Pharisees' true nature uh, to the rest of the group. So we move out of the teaching of the disciples now to the other side of the coin, as Luke usually does, into a scolding of of the Pharisees. So beginning in chapter 16 and verse 15, we start tonight. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail." 
Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Well, I read those verses tonight beginning with one I actually covered last week. I reread that final verse from last week just to help us get some context because Jesus flows directly out of that one thought into what follows tonight. And in that thinking, he was explaining essentially as he began there in chapter 16, verse 15, why these evil men are pursuing him and denying him and leading others astray in like manner. Why are they doing that? He says they seek to be esteemed with by men, among men, in the eyes of men, rather than by God himself, by glorifying God and in uh, doing the kinds of things God commands in their hearts. So they're esteemed in front of men, that's their desire, rather than esteemed before God. That's the implication of his statement. You seek the praises of men, you're not seeking the praises of God. And if you look up a few verses in your chapter, you'll notice that they are said to be grumbling or scoffing at what Christ had just said on the topic of money. And he's using their earlier scoffing. I like the way Jesus does this. He uses that as the basis for their, his accusations against them here. They love money, he says. They love the esteem of men. He puts the two together, essentially, as a common or as a single picture of their heart. They love what men think about them. They love money. And then he says something rather pro, pro, um, provocative for you and I today. Jesus says, God sees the desiring of money for the sake of accumulation of wealth as detestable. I'm putting this in my own words, but I want you to see that that's what he is saying in the way he phrases his comment about the Pharisees. What is desirable in the eyes of men is detestable to God. What was it they desired? They desired the love of money itself. Money, in other words, for the sake of accumulating wealth. Just money for the sake of having money. Remember last week in the parable, what did Jesus say? You should want unrighteous wealth, meaning the wealth of this world, but not for your own sake, but so that you may use it in such a way that you would have friends waiting for you in your eternal dwellings. There's a good reason to want money, but it's one that has a spiritual dimension to it. If it's solely about what it does for you in this world, it becomes a love of money, and that's detestable to God. So he's saying what you view as valuable, God views as detestable, not just on the issue of money, of course, but now he expands it, and he talks as well about those who would desire the praises of men to be esteemed in the eyes of men. That as well is detestable to God. What are the two things most people in this world seem to want the most? Fame and fortune. Those two things, if those are your goals in life, are detestable to God. That's a challenging and, and in many cases convicting awareness of Scripture. To the extent that we seek things that put, our, put ourselves up in the eyes of men and essentially glorify us, give us fame, give us esteem, if that's an end to itself... It's detestable before God, and likewise, our love of money. But then Jesus offers, uh, I, I think, some very interesting observations that take a little while for us to piece apart and fully appreciate, because it's a very, very interesting development, a very interesting way he develops his criticism of the Pharisees. He starts by saying that the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. What does that mean exactly? Well, it hopefully is clear to most of us, if not all of us in here, that Jesus here is referring, when he says the law and the prophets. He's referring first to the books of Moses. That would be the law, the Torah, the, five first, the first five books of the Old Testament for us today. So the law is not simply the, Deuteronomy, the law of Deuteronomy or Leviticus. It is not simply the Levitical law. It is the whole five books of the Torah. That was uh, uh, when, when the Jews called, talked about the law, they were referring to the Torah. They were referring to those five books. So he starts by saying the five books of Moses... And then he says the prophets, which refers generally to the books of the prophets in the Jewish Bible or the Hebrew Bible, what we would today call the Old Testament. And logically, I would extend this one step further to say that we should also include a third grouping of books in Jewish Scripture, and that would be the writings, as it's called. The Jews considered their Bible, their Hebrew Bible, to consist of the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And those three groups combined represent the books of the Old Testament for us today. Obviously, the Jews don't refer to their Bible as the Old Testament. They would see that as pejorative because it refers, it implies a better New Testament has come along, not something they're willing to recognize, of course. So the writings would include things like the Psalms, the Proverbs, the, songs of, the Song of Solomon, some prophetic books like Daniel, and the historical books, First and Second Kings, Chronicles, etc. Those are books that the Jews consider the writings. And I think by extension, what Jesus says here, when he says the law and the prophets, that's a common man's way of saying the Hebrew Bible in Jesus' day. So 
a logical conclusion to draw is that it means the whole Bible, not just literally the five books of Moses and the books of the prophets, but more generally the Old Testament. That was the phrase to say Old Testament in Jesus' day. So what Jesus just said to them is the Old Testament, the scriptures. Remember, there hadn't been a New Testament yet. In the day Jesus said his words, the New Testament was yet to be written. So what he basically said was the Bible. For, for anyone alive in the moment he spoke these words, he, he effectively said to them, the Bible has been proclaimed until John, or God's word has been proclaimed until John. The scriptures have been proclaimed until John. These are all similar statements. They're all synonymous, basically. And the words of God were proclaimed, he says, until John. And John refers to, of course, John the Baptist, whose ministry preceded and announced the arrival of Jesus' own ministry. In fact, John the Baptist was himself a fulfillment of scriptural prophecy out of Malachi, the one who would come in the desert, making straight the ways for the Messiah. And in that, in that sense, John the Baptist was officially the last Old Testament prophet. He would be considered the final Old Testament prophet. His works and his statements, however, were captured in New Testament writing. And yet his ministry is technically an Old Testament ministry because it precedes the work of Christ on the cross. It announced the coming of Christ, in fact. So what does Jesus mean? To put all this together now, what does Jesus mean that the Old Testament was proclaimed until John? That the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, was proclaimed until John? What's he mean by that? What he's referring to here is the consummate purpose of those proclamations. The consummate purpose of God's Word in the form of the Old Testament is arrived at by Jesus' own appearance on earth. In other words, Jesus is referring to the very purpose God had in giving men those writings in the first place. He delivered His Word, God delivered His Word through Moses and through the prophets and through all the other authors of the Old Testament so that men who would receive those scriptures, so that the nation of Israel might understand that God planned to establish His kingdom on earth. So let me say that again more succinctly. The reason God gave the Jews... Their Bible, the Old Testament, was so that they, as a nation, might know that a Messiah would come one day and establish his kingdom. That was the purpose that God had in bringing his word to men. And those books of God's Old Testament, of, of the Jewish or the Hebrew Bible, told them, told the nation of Israel, that they might have an opportunity to enter into that kingdom to be a part of that kingdom. It effectively was their invitation. It told them of the reality of a coming kingdom. It talked about the nature of the circumstances of its arrival and of the king that would come and establish it and of his nature and character. And it ultimately invited them to join into that kingdom. So long, of course, as they accepted their Messiah. So long as they received him. And until John's day, the only voice God had offered his people to help them recognize the Messiah was His Word. The only tool, the only mechanism that men on earth, and particularly the Jewish nation, had received from God so that they might know of this kingdom and be ready for it and recognize it was His Word. That was his, the only instrument He provided them and it was more than sufficient and it was a loving, merciful act on His part to do so. In fact, I would tell you the entire Bible, in fact, and this is obviously true in the New Testament, but I want to make the, the point as well for the Old, every Part of the Bible is a testimony to Christ. Every page of the Bible testifies to Christ. I'm fond of saying that if you open your Bible and point at any page, I will show you Christ on that page, without a doubt. It reflects not only him as a person, it reflects and, and explains his ministry to come on earth. It ultimately describes his reign on earth as king over the kingdom that God establishes. And he's represented in those pages in a variety of ways. I don't know if you're aware of all the ways God has shown us his son revealed to us his son and his kingdom in the pages of the Bible from front to back. Sometimes, for example, he's present on the page uh, literally as the angel of the Lord, as a pre-incarnate Christ coming to do work in advance of his incarnation. There's examples of that throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes he's pictured by the events of some historic individual, someone like Isaac who pictures Christ, or someone like Joseph who is a picture of Christ, or someone like David in his kingship is a picture of Christ, and many others. Sometimes Jesus is found on the pages of the Bible in the way that God's pattern of ordinances 
and of direction to his people, for example, in the design and in the furnishing of the tabernacle, how those things and those elements and those patterns point us to Christ and explain who Christ is, right? Sometimes he's represented in God's specific commandments to men. For example, the Sabbath day itself is given to men to picture Christ. It is a shadow of Christ. It is a picture of what we do when we come to Christ. We rest eternally in his work. That is how the Sabbath is given. Often, Christ is depicted prophetically in the writings of the prophets, or for example, in the Psalms. And of course, you may have seen many cases where the prophets of the Psalms speak prophetically about the coming Lord and about what will happen to him. And then sometimes Jesus is simply represented by the actions of an individual or through some larger historical event, like when Boaz redeems Ruth. She pictured, that, that event pictures the redemption of Israel by her, by her Messiah. Or when David invites Mephibosheth to sit at his table, that's a good example of how we Gentiles, the outcast, will be allowed to sit and dine at the table with Christ. And I could go on and on and on all night long Every page of the Bible, there is something there to represent Christ because that's the reason the Bible exists. The only reason God has allowed men to persist and live on earth past Adam was because he intended to redeem them. And the only way he intended to redeem them was through his son. And the only reason he gave us his word was so that we might know and recognize that redemption when it came and receive it so as to be saved. Apart from that plan, there's no reason to have earth or men on it once sin entered. And it's all to his glory. It's all a reflection of his grace and love. It is all to his praise. The entire Bible, therefore, is a testimony in details great and small to Christ and to Christ's ministry as the king in God's kingdom. To Christ, to him crucified, to him risen, and to him ruling. And this, Jesus says, went on until John's day. Until John's day. Because once John came, we're talking again about John the Baptist, once John came and proclaimed the arrival of the Messiah, the message suddenly changed. And fundamentally, it changed. Rather than telling nations that God would send a deliverer, rather than saying that a Messiah was a promised future event, now here's John, himself a fulfillment of Scripture, declaring the present reality of that promise, the impending arrival of that Messiah. In fact, as he arrives, look, the Lamb of God calling him out by name. The Messiah was here. So, so long as they were looking for the kingdom of God, for the, for the kingdom God was promising, they were in God's will. As long as they understood what the scriptures were telling them, as long as they were looking forward to it. But at the moment God's kingdom actually arrived, it was no longer sufficient to simply be looking forward to the kingdom. Now, to look forward to something that has been revealed as now a present reality is to be disobedient to God. You see, what could be obedient in one moment suddenly becomes disobedience in the next. Because as the message changed, we need to go with it. How many times have you had pastors teach you that, you know, if God tells you to do this and you do it, and then later he comes back and changes the direction, he gives you some new guidance, some new insight, he reveals something more to you. If you persist in what you heard from him before, are you in his will or are you out of his will? You're in sin. The one who does not do what he knows he should do is sinning, by definition. Do the last thing you heard him tell you until he gives you new instruction. But if you get new instruction, if you're clear on his will, and I believe he makes his will known definitively, then at that point you have an obligation to respond as you did the first time. And this is the point that Jesus now is moving into with the, with the crowd and with the Pharisees specifically. He's saying the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John's day. And then what does he say? He says, at the point when John's ministry arrived on earth, at the point when John now is fulfilling Scripture and proclaiming the arrival of the Messiah, we hear next, he says, since that time, in verse 16, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. A fundamental change has taken place in the message itself. What was a message of future foretelling now has become a message of present reality. What's more, Jesus himself is the one carrying the message. Rather than prophets, rather than men of writings that God had inspired, now we have the Messiah himself, the king, on the scene, proclaiming his own arrival and proving himself through power and through wisdom. He's proclaiming it with power and wisdom, with, with miracles and with compassion upon those who need it. And he's met every qualification held out by Scripture. He proved himself according to any standard somebody might apply in the moment. He was the perfect fulfillment of all that had been written. 
And those who had heeded the earlier message through the law and the prophets couldn't help but know that Jesus now was the one that had been promised if in fact their heart was truly uh, open to the message, hearing God's word and receiving it now as they see it proclaimed from God himself through Christ. But then Jesus ends that verse with something very fascinating, a phrase that for some is a very complex or very confusing phrase. He says, everyone is forcing their way into it, which refers to the kingdom. So he said, the kingdom was proclaimed as a future event until John. Now that I am here, I'm proclaiming the reality of the kingdom, and yet everyone's forcing their way into it. Matthew has a similar verse in chapter 11 of his gospel, but he puts it this way, a little different feel to Matthew's version. In Matthew 11, verse 12, he says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Sort of a different phrasing of the same thought. But he adds this idea of violence, of violent men taking the kingdom by force. Both Matthew and Luke here are describing the same situation. They're both capturing Jesus' thought essentially in the same way. The kingdom has a specific form. The kingdom is offered under specific circumstances to certain people on a certain basis. And all those specifics are decided by God himself. It's his kingdom. He determines who he invites. And he accepts who he will into it. And he determined that the kingdom would have a certain nature. And he determined it according to his sovereign will. And he revealed this will concerning his kingdom, concerning its nature, concerning who could enter and on what basis. He revealed all of that through his word and ultimately through his son himself, right? Not hard to understand, not hard to appreciate. It's his party. He gets to invite who he wants and he gets to decide what happens while we're there. And we have no say-so over it. But nonetheless, violent men, as Matthew describes them, are trying to take it by force. Or as Luke words it, men are forcing their way into the kingdom. Now, who are these violent men? Well, by the context of what Luke is talking about here, I think it's clear enough. It's the Pharisees, of course. It's the Pharisees. They wanted to make their own rules for how to approach God and how to enter his kingdom. They want to be able to set up their own standard for what it takes to get into the kingdom. They wanted to come to God on their own terms. You remember the older son and the prodigal son, uh, uh, prodigal son parable that we taught uh, a couple weeks back? What was the character nature, the character and nature of that older son as we studied at the end of that parable. He stands outside the party, petulant, demanding that the father come to him and explain himself for what he had decided to do in terms of who he was willing to invite, for whom he was willing to have a party. The older son, not willing to accept the father's rationale, not willing to accept the father's grace and mercy, not understanding it, demanding that the father come to him on his terms and meet his expectations for who should be rewarded. That's the picture here. Pharisees who are forcing their way in on this, in the sense that they are trying to define for themselves what it means to enter God's kingdom and how they're going to get in. But of course they forget that the Father alone has the sole prerogative to offer his grace and mercy to whom he wishes and on what basis he wishes. And that was defined in the law and in the prophets and Christ himself fulfilled it. And Jesus now at this point in the gospel, he's teaching in this moment the fact that even as he stands there preaching the kingdom, think about the irony here, even as he stands before them as the king, proclaiming the kingdom, teaching the facts of the kingdom right there in their presence, these violent men are standing before him, scoffing and carping, determined to define their own path to God. Ironic, to say the least. They're forcing their way into the kingdom if that were even possible, and of course the obvious conclusion is it's not, though they try. And they're eventually going to prove his words true as their violent nature ultimately drives them to put Jesus to death at the hands of the Romans. Their violence becomes self-evident in the fact that these men are the principal instigators of the violence that takes Christ's life. But then Jesus makes an obvious, and I guess a statement that, an obvious statement that you could easily agree with, and yet it's incredibly profound. In fact, in this statement, I think he puts to rest the issue of who will enter the kingdom. He says, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the law to fail. In fact, if you were to look a little further in Luke, Luke chapter 21, verse 33, Jesus says that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words, Jesus' words, will never pass away. So here he says it in a somewhat forward-looking way, uh, somewhat euphemistic way, and when he gets to chapter 21, he just says it plain, plain out. 
What you see here will pass away, but my words never will. And he says it's easier for that to happen than for my words to fail in this point in, in Luke. Now look at how he began the section. I want you to understand what he's leading to here. How did he begin tonight? He says, the law and the prophets. He begins in verse 16, talking about the Hebrew Bible, what we would call the Old Testament. Then, consider his comment from chapter 21, the one I just made, uh, just made, that the heavens and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. The word there is equivalent to what he's just talked about in verse 16. The word, the Bible, the scriptures, they're one and the same. So he's saying, the word has been preached until John, but the word will never pass away. None of it will fail. None of it will be ignored. None of it will be forgotten. And though the Pharisees would like to ignore it, and though they would like to find their own satisfaction in their own method, but they can't succeed at that, God's word will stand against them perpetually. And more to the point, Christ is saying that his word is regarding the kingdom and how men may enter it will stand. He says, you're trying to force your way into the kingdom, but my words are not going to fail. The word of God is not going to fail. You want to have it on your terms, but the Word of God established the terms. It established the nature and character of the kingdom. It established who could get in, and it's not going to fail. You can try what you want. You can do it the way you think works. You can wish it away, but it's not going to go away. In fact, this world will go away before that Word will go away. So that is the way. That is the only way to understand and ultimately accept the kingdom. No one is going to force their way into God's kingdom on the basis of anything other than an understanding of God's Word. By the way, that's not only true in the Pharisees' day. That's true today. That's true for you and I today. Paul says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, in Romans 10, 17. It is, the word of God is the one divinely appointed way that God reveals himself and calls men to himself and welcomes them into the kingdom. In Jesus' day, in John's day, before that day, and certainly today. It is the one divinely appointed way. Do you understand God could have done it any way he wanted he could have done it any way he wanted. What he did, though, was he said, my word will be the one instrument by which I will bring faith. Not by sight, but by hearing the word of God. That is the way I want to bring men and women to know me and to come into my kingdom. Why? Well, self-evidently, because then he gets the glory for it. Remember, Paul says, I did not come to you in cleverness of speech so as to make the cross of Christ void. You see, that comes out of his letter to the Corinthians, I believe, chapter 1 of, verse, of, of, of the first letter. What he's, saying, what he's saying when he talks to the Corinthian church that way is this. Hey, I, you know, who are you to say you were of Paul or of Apollos? He said, I didn't come to you and convince you to be a, a Christian. I didn't come to you with clever words and convince you to be a Christian. If that were even possible, it would make the cross of Christ void. It would mean that there is no supernatural component to faith. It would mean that we can just convince each other to believe whatever we want them to believe, and it's merely an exercise of human thought and intellect. And there's nothing supernatural about that. It is not a work of God. On the, apart from it, he says, it is a supernatural work of God to bring the word of God to men so that they might know the truth and be saved, so that he would receive the glory for every single last one of us that enters into the kingdom. That's why he says it's by his word. Now think about that for a minute. That means if we deny that in our actions and in the way we approach ministry or evangelism, we should expect failure. We should expect to fail in any evangelistic effort or any ministry effort for that matter, if we, are, if we void the power of the word by our actions and decisions, if we say it doesn't matter, if we put it aside, if we say it's not a part of who we are, if we relegate it to the dusty shelf next to the dictionary, why would God reward that effort? Now, I'm not saying he's a, it's, it's impossible. He may do it despite us for his sovereign purpose. But in general, that would not suit his nature and character given how he has declared his word to be the one instrument to bring faith. Conversely, to the effect we make this the center of ministry, we should expect results to God's glory and to the extent he decides to work with us, and that, to the extent he decides to magnify our effort. And just to prove his point, just to prove Jesus' point here concerning the unchanging and uncompromising, uncompromising quality of God's word, Jesus reminds his audience with one simple verse of the hard truth of God's word. He cites one single example on divorce. Now, if you were looking at this chapter as a whole and read it through, you might have had this moment as you were reading it where you stop at that verse I read and you look at it and you go, well, that's kind of out of nowhere. He's talking about this. He's talking about that. He's on the Pharisee's case. Next thing you know, divorce. It's almost like Luke decides, oh yeah, I forgot to mention, Jesus said this one time and he sticks it in one chapter somewhere. It has that feel to it, right? Rest assured, the Holy Spirit did not 
uh, invoke that kind of absent-minded thinking on Luke's part. There's a very clear reason why it's here. I believe it's because Jesus spoke it here. And the reason he spoke it was it cut to the heart of the Pharisees. In that moment, it made his point better than anything he could have said out of Scripture. It is important to establish, though, that this is simply being used as an example. Jesus is pulling one example out of the Word of God to prove the larger point he's trying to make, which is that the Word of God is inviolate. It is unchanging. It is not compromising to suit men's desires. It is spoken once and it lasts forever, and it never changes. So he picks an example to prove it, but the one he picked was picked for a reason, given his audience. And I could, by the way, say this about any rule or or standard or expectation out of God's Word. Jesus chose this one, so we need to understand why. But it is not to say that this one rule, if you will, this one expectation rises above all others. It is simply to illustrate that God's Word does not change. Jesus states here the biblical truth concerning divorce. And that is, to divorce and remarry is adultery. And to marry someone who's been divorced is also adultery. The principle here is simple. Marriage is defined by God in Genesis as one man, one woman, becoming one flesh. You join yourselves to one another in a sexual union. And therefore, under virtually any circumstance, if that union is violated, it is adultery. And to remarry and then to have a new sexual union would therefore be adultery to the first. Paul himself emphasizes this idea at several points in his letters. Now, I said virtually any circumstances because Jesus himself makes an exception to this situation in other texts, in other Gospels. Twice in Matthew, to be specific, Jesus adds a disclaimer. And the disclaimer he adds is this. If the partner commits adultery, if a partner in marriage commits adultery while they are in marriage, then the other partner is free to remarry without committing adultery themselves. And the idea here is simple. The first partner's act of adultery in the marriage has already destroyed the marriage covenant, has already ripped the two... rip the one flesh apart. There is no longer one flesh by virtue of the first partner's act of adultery. And therefore, there is no violation of adultery or a violation of the covenant by that second partner if that second partner were now to remarry. That's why Jesus makes the exception. It's not to suggest that you should be happy about remarriage or that you should be seeking after that. It's simply to make the obvious point. There is a covenant until it's broken. And once it's broken, it's not there anymore for either partner. Now, there's other qualifying texts. Paul adds that, you know, that, that, that if the first wants to be reconciled, then the, the second you know, should, should be willing to go to a reconciliation. There's all kinds of, of follow-on thought that stems from a central idea in Scripture, which is to love, one, love the other like you would love yourself. Be willing to reconcile if there is a desire for reconciliation. Hold yourself pure, maybe in the hope of reconciliation. There's a lot of, of, of life application that could stem out of that discussion that's not necessarily addressed here. Jesus doesn't mention the exception here, though, for one very specific reason. Men like these Pharisees, they love to change God's rules to suit their purpose. That was their life. Remember, these are unbelievers. These are not men who have any regard for God's Word. They don't truly live by it. It's a tool. It's something they use to manipulate men for their own desires. And they're willing to change the rules to suit their purpose. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees, remember, had become a law unto themselves. They were the law. What they said was, was the, the law that the people lived by, including their interpretation of the Mosaic Law, the rules they laid on top of the Mosaic Law, all of that was in their prerogative. And the world, the Jewish world, lived according to their decrees. And this was never more evident than in the area of divorce in the Jewish culture. The Pharisees were famous for this. They had created rules and procedures around divorce. And the Pharisees had developed this whole structure of rules to help them adjudicate people's marriages and make them feel like they had not violated God's law, and they had been let out from underneath God's law according to these pharisaical rules. And here's how they would do it. They knew that God forbade divorce. They supported that view. I mean, how could you deny it? It's in the Word. But they often granted it, nonetheless. If a man asked for divorce, they almost never granted it if the man was poor or without any political power. If a woman asked for divorce, she never got it virtually ever, for any reason. No woman was ever granted divorce. So women never had the hope. Men would get it, but only, only if men were powerful or wealthy enough that the Pharisees could gain some personal, political, or financial advantage out of granting of divorces. We see the same thing happening in churches today. In some churches, you can see annulments, you can see um, divorces, 
or other kinds of, of instruments of dissolving of the marriage awarded to people who can rise to the level of power, wealth, or influence that the people in charge need or desire. It's a purely corrupt system. Meanwhile, God in heaven hasn't changed his rule, which is Jesus' point here. Meanwhile, God knows what divorce is, he knows what marriage is, and he hasn't been confused on the point since the day he established it. And he continues to hold men and women accountable to that. Now understand, as believers, every sin is forgiven on Christ's work on the cross. And no sin holds greater accountability than another. They are all equally washed away by Christ's blood. So to hold any one person accountable more than another on the basis of some past sin is to ignore the grace itself that's been poured out for you and I. So we never look upon another believer and say, your mistake in that regard somehow leaves you outside fellowship or in some way unworthy of my love and respect as a fellow believer because while you're busy taking the splinter out of their eye, you ought to watch out for the log sticking out of your own eye. So the fact that he uses divorce and the fact that some of us may have had that in our background and feel somewhat convicted over it is to ignore the fact that having come to Christ, that sin is forgiven. It is no longer a part of God's view of you. It has been washed clean. You are, it is as far from you as the east is from the west, the Bible says. But the principle hasn't changed and God's view of divorce hasn't changed and the inviolate nature of God's word hasn't changed. In the midst of this kind of abuse and hypocrisy, Jesus says plainly, everyone who divorces commits adultery. Not just some, but all. And he wants to make the larger point here that God's word is not subject to men's manipulations or whims or evil desires. It is what it is. What is true in God's word will remain true forever no matter how much we wish it weren't that way, no matter how much we want to wish it away, no matter how much we ignore it. And then he directs them into this fascinating story. Some call this a parable. I, I have a hard time calling it a parable because I think there's some aspects of this story that tell us it's more than a parable. And I'll show you that as we go through it. Let's read the next three verses, starting in chapter 16, verse 19. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Not a very pleasant picture, obviously, of this poor man. And the story begins uh, very much in the style of a parable, which is why we many times hear it described as a parable. And it begins with the Greek article de, D-E, de, which in my version is translated now. That's a very common connection word in the Greek, and it, it suggests that this story is connected to the previous topic or to the previous thought. It's a natural following thought from what was preceding it. So it's not a disconnected story. Jesus is making a point in proof of what he just spoke. So we understand the point of this story is to prove what? To prove the inviolate, uncompromising, unchanging nature of God's word. But more than that, more than that, to prove its sufficiency and necessity in faith, in the purposes God has given it. Remember, to announce the kingdom, to prove it when it showed up, and to invite men into it. That's its purpose. This story captures all of those features, all of those facets of the word. And as I said, it kind of features a classic parable figure as you begin the story. A rich man living the quintessential privileged rich life. And you get a few descriptions of this man, but very quickly, the story takes an unexpected turn because the next character has a first name. And we're going to look at each of these men in a minute, a little more detail, but I want to make the point as we go that you have a rich man and you don't have a poor man. Could he have told the story that way? Undeniably. He does in many other cases, does he not? Slaves, servants, masters, managers, woman, man, uh, farmer, peasant, servant, whatever, rich man. But here, Lazarus. And in fact, this is the only time in all the Bible where a parable, or any story Jesus told, had a person with a first name. That's what makes this story so notable. You'll never see another parable with a person given a name in the parable. In fact, it's not just Lazarus who's given a name. There's another important character in this parable, as you'll see later, who is also named and recognizable. The name of this man is Lazarus, which in the Greek, that's the Greek form of the word Eleazar. That's the Greek way of saying the Jewish name Eleazar. So this man is named Eleazar, which means God is help. You may remember that Abraham had a servant by the name of Eleazar, and at one point Jesus, Abraham turns to God in chapter 15 of Genesis, and he says, who is to be my heir? All I have is his servant, Eleazar, who was a Gentile, by the way. And that's when God responded and said, he will not be your heir. Don't worry. Your heirs will be numbered like the stars, and, and so on. And he fulfills that promise with Isaac. 
If this is a parable, there, then it would be the only one where Jesus names one of its characters and talks in such specific terms about a true place out of Scripture, which is another facet of the story, which makes it different than most parables, than any other parable for that matter. All other parables talk in figurative or symbolic or euphemistic terms in lo- terms of location or activity. A wedding feast, unnamed and, un- and, and, and unidentified. A vineyard, unnamed and unidentified. Here we have, though, a specific place, a real, a real place being used as the setting with real people who have real names, which gives us a, a sense here that, that perhaps this story isn't to be seen strictly as a parable. It may also be true that the events of this story are fictionalized. This is not literally a true historical story, let's say. That could very well be the, tr- the case. He may have manufactured the events for the sake of telling this story to make his point. That much may very well be true. But that's not strictly speaking to say that everything in the story is made up. It may very well be that he took real people and he took a very real place and he held all those things together in very realistic, honest ways, but the actual events and words of the story were simply his own to make the point he made. So it's not quite a parable in the sense that there is reality in the story, but then it doesn't have to be a literal historical event either. It can be somewhere in between. Much like somebody might take the events of the Civil War and take real people like General Lee, and then fictionalize some account about General Lee that occurred during the Civil War. It doesn't deny the reality of the Civil War, doesn't deny the reality and the, and the person of General Lee, but it certainly doesn't mean everything in the story has to be literally true. You see my point, I hope. I believe that's what we're looking at here. I believe we're looking at something that's more than a parable in that there are some truths, literal truths, in the story. So let's go through it now and and try to understand what those are and, again, what the point of the story is. So let's look at the details. We see this rich man, as we said, living the life of luxury. And the details of this story make it pretty clear that his wealth is very great. Uh, For example, he dresses, and I love this word, habitually in purple in fine linen. Well, purple as a dye was very expensive. It was very hard to find enough raw material out of nature to create purple, the color purple, as a dye. So... To have enough that you could dye a large piece of clothing, all, all by itself, uh, that implied a lot of wealth. There's a reason why royalty was associated with purple robes, because in ancient times that was the most difficult color to obtain. So it's just the, the color purple itself spoke of wealth. In today's world, you might say this is something like making a robe out of spun gold. Okay? Something in that nature. This guy dressed habitually in it. You know, habitually, I just saw oh, another gold robe today. Oh, well, you know. It's that sense of wealth. It's that sense of lavishness and excess. Kind of going hand in hand in that is fine linen, another expensive commodity of the day. He had more than enough. Very, very wealthy man. And then as a comparison, sort of an absurd comparison, you have this man at the man's gate. At the rich man's gate lays this other poor man, Lazarus. And he's suffering. And his suffering is so acute that he is actually being comforted by dogs. Now, you have to understand in the Jewish culture, a dog, remember they call Gentiles dogs. That's how low a dog was to the Jew. They never had dogs as pets, far from it. They were, conce- they were seen like vermin. In fact, that's still the case in many places in, in the world. If you go, when I was in uh, Kenya, uh, Kenyans are terrified of dogs. Uh, a pet dog to them is the most terrifying animal they've ever seen because in their world, dogs are wild creatures that attack you. It would be like you coming home to someone's house and finding them you know, with a pet crocodile. And your immediate reaction is, how can you live with this animal? How do you even have any hope to be safe around this animal? That's their impression of dogs. We brought a pastor from Kenya over to visit. We didn't bring him over. He had to come over for other reasons. But I had met him when I had been there, uh, ministering in Kenya. So when he came over to the United States, he made a point to visit and stay with us and have dinner with us one night. And we have a poodle. A poodle is hardly a, a, a threatening animal in my mind. I think I, I see them as you know, one step above, above vermin. Actually, I do. I, see, I don't see them as having a lot of value. This man was very concerned about the poodle. I mean, we're talking about a dog, this, you know, a miniature poodle, all right, who wouldn't hurt anybody, unfortunately. You know, not much of a watchdog is my point. And this man was terrified of him. Absolutely, you know, we had to do, we had to go out of our way to keep the animal away from him so that he wouldn't be scared of him, right? Well, back to the story. If a man's only comfort in this life is that a dog would lick his sores, I mean, you put the whole image together and it's bad enough, but that he would pick a dog to do it just adds to the misery, just emphasizes how low this man is. So again, it's probably not literal in its, in its details. It's simply to make an obvious contrast. The opulent, absurd wealth of this man and the almost unbelievable, destitute nature of this man's life. And yet, they're physically one outside the gate of the other. 
And then the story continues in verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of my finger in water and cool off my tongue. The tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. So as Jesus continues in the story, both men die. I love the way he draws the contrast almost immediately, though. He, he says one is carried by angels into the bosom of Abraham, the other one's buried. So he immediately begins to reverse the contrast, to, re- to juxtapose their positions. What had been a position of wealth and opulence and privilege and another of, of destitute living, uh, of, of abandonment by, by any sign of mercy or grace, now it's immediately reversed in death, even in the very beginning one being lovingly carried by angels to his place in the afterlife, the other one being essentially you know, buried. Uh, there's, no, there's no care in that at all. And we find them in Hades. Now, Hades is the name, the, the Greek name, that the Bible gives to the place where God holds all the souls of the departed, specifically the souls of the departed unbelievers. So, the souls of the departed unbelievers of all time, from Cain all the way until today and continuing, are held in a place called Hades. And there they await. Even as we speak, they are all there in this very moment, according to Scripture, awaiting their own resurrection. They will be resurrected into a new body. All men and women who have ever lived will be resurrected into a new body. So their soul, as it exists now in that place, is awaiting that day of resurrection. That day of resurrection is called the second resurrection out of Revelation. And it is... When that second resurrection occurs, its purpose for occurring is so that they might stand in physical form before the great white throne. And on that great white throne, Christ himself sits as judge of the living and the dead, we're told. And they will all be judged according to the deeds that are written in the books that that we're told in, in chapter 20 of Revelation contain the deeds of their life. And they will be judged according to their deeds. But of course, we know how that story ends, don't we? The wages of sin is death. It is no less a true, righteous judgment. It is is not a sham. It is not a kangaroo court, to be sure. But similarly, the judgment is not in question either. So the second resurrection that will occur one day in the future is the resurrection of all the unbelievers who have ever died of all time. But until that day, they await that day, they await in torment in this place called Hades. Hades is actually part of a larger place, according to the Old Testament, a place called Sheol. Sheol is the place where all souls go and await resurrection in the time prior to Christ's own resurrection. So you and I might sum that up by Old Testament saints. An Old Testament saint who died went to Sheol and waited for Christ's resurrection. Sheol being a place that includes as a part of it Hades. But of course... The, unbelie- the believers of the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, they're not in Hades. That's the place for the unbeliever. They're in a different part of Sheol, the other side, if you will, which is euphemistically called Abraham's bosom in the Old Testament. That's why Christ used the term here. Because to the Jew, that meant heaven. But it was understood to be a waiting place, not final resting place. It was, me- it was understood, even in Jesus' day, to be the place that the saintly believers go waiting for their kingdom when they would then enter into the kingdom along with all other saints, with all other faithful men of God. So, in the Old Testament, men and women as they died went into Sheol on one side or the other, depending on whether or not they had a faithful heart, whether God knew their heart to be faithful or not. One side Hades, one side known as Abraham's bosom. Here you see that depicted, which is why I said earlier that this is not purely a fictional parable. There there are very real, historical, accurate events used in the story. Like I would said earlier about a Civil War-based story. The events of the Civil War are still true, even if the fictionalized account is not. So here we're looking at the rich man in Hades and the poor man in Abraham's bosom. 
What is interesting about this is some of the details of that place are provided here and only here, only in this chapter of Luke, in all the Bible. We find, for example, the possibility, and I say possibility because obviously we don't know quite where to draw the line between truth and fiction in this parable. So we have to be a little bit careful about uh, arriving at some dogmatic conclusion. We need to be willing to agree that we could be a little off. We could be a little wrong in how we cut these details between fact and fiction. So let's talk in... um, sort of equivocal statements. We could say, for example, that it appears as though one side has knowledge of the other. It appears as though one side can see the other and perhaps even communicate with the other. But again, maybe that's just a fictionalized part of this story. Perhaps that's not true. It seems also the case that some might want to go to the other side, which is why God has to fix a chasm. Not just that those on the bad side would want to go to the good side, but perhaps even that those on the good side might want to seek mercy, show mercy to those on the bad side. It seems to be implied by the fact that Abraham says it that way. But again, it could just be a a tool of the story itself. But it is important to recognize Jesus uses this place in a consistent manner. He uses it in a manner consistent with the way it's described in Scripture in the Old Testament. Uh, Jacob himself, in Genesis chapter 37, verse 35, says that when he dies, he expects to be in Sheol further emphasizing the fact that they knew the place was not merely a place for the bad people, so to speak. It was the place all people went. So it's obvious he knew he was going there. It's probably implied that he thought he'd be on the good side. But the point is, he didn't have any problem with the prospect of going to Sheol. That was the place all people went. Let's go to the fundamental question that you should have in mind as you read this parable. Why is the rich man in torment? Why is the poor man not? We kind of take it for granted, right? I think there's a certain side of us that likes to believe anybody who's rich ought to get what they deserve, right? And anyone who's poor should be rewarded by God for a life of of being poor. But that's not a very biblical perspective, I have to be fair with you. It is not to say that every poor person has reason to enter God's kingdom and every rich person not. Though there is a correlation there in some cases. So why is it here? Is the rich automatically bad? Are the poor automatically righteous before God? Well, The lives of these two men suggest the reason why they're there. The rich man showed no compassion for that poor man, though he obviously knew him. Some see the the reason why Lazarus is named in this parable simply as a way of illustrating how bad the rich man was because it gives the rich man an opportunity to to show you that he knew Lazarus because he calls him by name. As he looks up, he says, Abraham, send Lazarus. He knew the man well enough to know his name is sort of the implication there which suggests is not only that he recognized him, but in the life he led on earth, knowing that man was outside the gate, he did nothing to aid his circumstances, though it would have taken very little for him to make a very big difference in that man's life. So the fact that they lived such opposite lives, so extremely opposite, and yet the man knew Lazarus, is conviction against him. It is our opportunity to convict him. His callousness, his hardness of heart against that man, his lack of love for that man, reveals his heart to be depraved, reveals a selfish, hard heart. In other words, the heart is his problem. Yes, he had behavior that was despicable, but that behavior simply revealed a heart that had no love and no compassion, which itself is evidence of no faith. So in other words, by where he ends up, we can draw a reasonable conclusion. The man is there for lack of faith, and that faith, that lack of faith is evidenced by a life lived without love and compassion. He's an unrepentant sinner due judgment. We need to keep it in mind the fact That is, we have opportunity to witness to others about the gospel. Let our minds consider this fact about the fate those of unbelief will face upon their death. Let it it drive us a little bit. Let Let it motivate us to push through any shame or any conflict or any rejection we may face in the course of witnessing. Because the more we consider what happened to that rich man, the less we ought to worry about what consequences befall us for trying to push through that rejection and shame and guilt and whatever else comes our way to communicate the importance of faith in the gospel. That's one way it drives me. That's the true measure of love, by the way, that we would persevere through their hatred to the point of reaching their heart as God opens up opportunity. Remember? While we were still enemies, He died for us. He did the same to us. And also from the circumstances of the story, I think we can only fairly conclude as well that the poor man was a man of faith. That's not stated. But the tenor of Scripture, the the, the total witness of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation would mean that must be true for him to be where he was. Of course, the point of the story is not to help us understand who got in and who didn't and why. They're simply the, the, the players in the story acting out a larger issue for us, which is what? 
as we introduced this parable, it was the issue of God's inviolate, unchanging, uncompromising word. That's the point of the parable. I think I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't make a very obvious conclusion and application from the text as we just move past this moment with Lazarus and the rich man. We need to be careful any time as a member of the body of Christ that we make conclusions about what God is prepared to do to support our lifestyles. In fact, it's pretty obvious from this parable, I think, that God is perfectly willing to leave a faithful follower in destitute circumstances his whole life if doing so suits his eternal purpose. So, my point here is not that we should ignore the rich, far from it, or or rather ignore the uh, poor, far from it. James himself says in chapter 2 of his letter, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Meaning it's not true. Meaning it's a reason for us to wonder if you're really a believer or not, if you don't have that kind of compassion particularly for a brother or sister in Christ. But the other side of this is equally true. We cannot look upon the fact that somebody is in a destitute circumstance and even as we help them in that circumstance, turn to them and say, there must be something wrong in your life to explain why God is doing this to you. There is something wrong with you or with your self-discipline or perhaps there's something wrong with your attitude. Perhaps you're suffering for the sins of some earlier decisions in your life, but clearly you're getting what you deserve because God wouldn't do this to you if it weren't for that fact. The story of Lazarus and the rich man stands as a testimony against that unbiblical thinking. It is in God's sovereign purview to leave us where he leaves us, whether rich, whether poor, whether in between. And though our own personal desires may drive us to want to work our way up, pull ourselves up from our bootstraps, so to speak, if we are able to, it is only proof that God's sovereign will included that we would do so. And if we never do, likewise, it is God's will. And who are we to judge him for that decision? Because in the end, Lazarus received a far greater reward than the rich man did. Then the man said, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers. In order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Interesting, this man's now an evangelist himself. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, there will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. This rich man has another idea. I love this guy. He's always thinking about the next plan, right? He's always got his next idea. He says, No, 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 I got an idea. He says, I can't save myself. That much is obvious. I've tried. I'm told there's no hope. I'm stuck. Okay, well, now what's next? Ah, there's people left behind. There's others that haven't got here yet. So maybe I can help them. Can't help myself. Hey, plan B. He says, Abraham, just send Lazarus back to my family if you don't mind. Give him a little weekend pass. Send him back. Let him tell him about what goes on down here. That'll, that'll fix him. Why Lazarus? You know, there must have been other people there. If it's truly the real place, and this is a scene in that place, there's billions of people there. Why Lazarus? Why send Lazarus? Well, presumably, if he knew them, they knew them. If, if, if he knew Lazarus, they knew Lazarus, right? And that means they'd recognize him. And, of course, they know he died. So if they see him again, they know he's alive again. And if you see someone alive after they've died, that's a pretty clear evidence of a supernatural act, wouldn't you agree? That's a pretty clear evidence that they have something they know, right? What do we all want to know in this life? We all want to know what happens after we die, right? That's the world's greatest unknown. Why are we so fascinated with stories who people who die and come back from the dead, right? They have a moment of death and then they talk about a light and I walk through the tunnel of light. And we're all fascinated by those stories because that's the great unknown. When you go and you can't come back, right? That's, what, that's why we don't know other than what God has revealed through His Word. And of course, if you don't accept His Word, you have nothing. So if somebody has died and we know they've died and they've come back, their message ought to have some kind of attraction to us is the thought. Versus just sending some strange nobody who says, by the way, I was in Sheol, let me tell you what happens down there. What? You're a nutcase. Oh, Lazarus? Wait a minute, weren't you dead? What's it like down there? That's the assumption that this rich man is making about why Lazarus would be a convincing spokesman. Seems sensible. But then Abraham responds that these brothers already have the law and the prophets. Which means, of course, they already have the Hebrew Bible. They already have the Old Testament. They already have God's Word. Here we go again, talking about God's gracious provision 
of his word. These brothers were obviously Jewish because the whole story is told in a Jewish context. They had been given the word just as it had been given to their fathers. All Jews had the word, basically, at their disposal, in their temple, in, their, uh, in the tabernacle itself, in their temple, in their synagogue. In fact, it's, it's reasonable to say they had the most complete record possible to any human on earth to explain God's character, his nature, his expectations, and what happens upon your death. They had a complete record of them to, uh, to given to them to warn them of judgment, to warn them of the consequences of, of failure to follow God's word. And they had God exhorting them throughout the history of their people through the word to be faithful and obedient to his calling. They had everything you'd ever want to know. In fact, they were far better than the average person because the Gentiles did not know these things to the degree that the, that the Jews did. Paul says they had far more than Gentiles. They were given the oracles of God. They were the ones who kept the oracles of God. That was a privilege among men. So they only needed to consult that book to know everything they needed to know about what was going to happen to them if they died. End of point. But this man, this rich man, he knows his family too well. He knows that family. He just left them. He says, I almost hear him kind of chuckling. No, 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 Abraham. Not those guys. Trust me. That isn't going to work. No. He says, if someone like Lazarus comes back to them, that'll get them. But the book, no, that's not going to work. I, I sense that in the way they say it. I sense this kind of dismissive Oh, well, the book, come on. Let's get real. Let's do something significant. My guess is whatever book they may have had in their rich household, it was gathering dust on the shelf. It's gathering dust somewhere next to the dictionary, right? Unfortunately, like many homes today, Christian and otherwise. It's, it's, it's a reference work. You know, it's a, I, I'm always amazed at how many Christians I meet, especially those who've been Christians most of their life, who, for the most part, don't know this book. Or the other side of the coin is someone who says, oh, yeah, I've already read the Bible. Have you ever heard that that is my hands-down favorite comment. I teach a book study. I'll teach a study like Luke. And I've had this even in the case of Luke where I'll tell somebody, yeah, we're studying Luke verse by verse. Oh, yeah, I already read that book. Oh, okay. Good for you. Right? As if God's Word is simply a novel and once you get the point, it kind of loses its attraction. It's not the living Word of God that I know. And these men in the rich man's day would have been much the same. They hear it on the Sabbath. Every time they go to the synagogue, they hear it. It's read aloud in the Sabbath on the, in the synagogue. They probably had to memorize it as a youth. You know, the typical Jewish boy's upbringing to the point of being confirmed a man at age 13 in a bat mitzvah. That, that included a requirement to show knowledge of the word to the extent that they'd memorized it fairly extensively, far more than you and I have. So they had that to go on. And, that, and yet there was nothing in there that excited them. Nothing. Nothing that attracted them. Nothing to get their attention. Certainly nothing as revolutionary, as, as attractive as a man walking around who's come back from dead. That's far better, far more exciting than anything that book has. Why? Because it's spectacular. Because it's convincing. Because it doesn't depend on faith. Paul says in Romans 8.24, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is not seen... For hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? They'll believe Lazarus because it doesn't require faith to believe something you can see. So what he's saying effectively, though he doesn't even know it, is he's saying, no, Abraham, they don't have faith. <laughs> but if you send them something they can see and touch, that'll work. And what God is saying back through Abraham in this moment is, well, that's obvious enough, but that's not how I work. If I wanted men to come to me on the basis of what they could see, feel, and touch, then I wouldn't be having them come to me on the basis of faith. And I have decided, as God, that the one and only way you will approach me is through my Son on the basis of faith in my Word. And I've given you the Word, and if it's not enough, nothing else will work. He doesn't say, I'm not going to let you have anything else. He's saying that even if I do, it doesn't work. As spectacular as it is, it doesn't prove the point. It actually doesn't resonate. It doesn't convict the heart. It never penetrates. It, it catches their attention, but then when the next thing catches their attention, their mind just wanders off that and onto something else. It never works. Though you might think it does, it doesn't. Only faith in God's Word will work. And the reason that Lazarus returning is, is not faith, it's because it's self-evident. And that is the same as it is today. You can bring people a convincing message. You can perform what appear to be physical man manifestations of the Spirit. And even if those are literally the Spirit Himself, they will not produce faith apart from God's Word because faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ and through no other means. The Pharisees themselves, who are the audience here, as you know, 
who are the audience for the story, they are in view in what Jesus has just said at the end of this parable, at the end of this story. They have had the law. They have had the prophets their whole lives. They are masters of it in the eyes of the people. They study it. They preach it, though they don't live it. And yet, they are forcing their way into the kingdom of God on their own basis, not using the very word that they know and, 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 and adjudicate for the sake of the people, hoping that God will receive them on their own terms. And look what they've seen in their life up to this point. Up to this point, as Jesus tells this story, they have witnessed supernatural acts by Christ Himself. They've seen the equivalent, by the way, of a man resurrected. Has Jesus not resurrected a man Already in Luke's Gospel and in the other Gospels, we see other examples of him doing exactly the same thing. So the very act that's represented in this story has in fact occurred in their sight. And they're not believing it. They're not believing in Christ. And as incredible as those events are, they haven't changed their minds. He's proven his point already. Only God's Word has that power. And then he says, I believe the most powerful and convicting piece of the whole story. He says, and they won't believe even if they see someone die and be resurrected. And who is that a reference to, of course? To Christ himself. There will be a day in the future when Christ himself, the man they knew just as the rich man knew Lazarus, a man they were familiar with, a man they saw die and knew was dead, will reappear and, and, and show himself to the Jewish nation. And the stories of his resurrection will become clear enough, even to those who don't see him personally. And that will not be enough to change the minds of those who will not accept the law and the prophets. And by accepting the law and the prophets, what do we mean? We mean what he meant earlier. They don't accept what those, th those people say about the Messiah. They accept it if you think of it strictly in terms of we live by it. We use it for our, our, li our lifestyle. That's not what the purpose of the law was. That's not the purpose of the prophets. The purpose in them was that you would know who the Messiah was and receive the Messiah. If you don't use it for that purpose, none other matters. If it doesn't bring you to that result, then it holds no value to you because that was its only purpose in being given. And these men used it for every reason other than that. And therefore, they are not receiving their kingdom. They will not be ushered in. And even though Christ himself will die in their presence and be resurrected, it will not convince them because the law and the prophets was not sufficient to, for them to know who the Messiah was. And by extension, what they are doing is leading astray a generation of the nation of Israel in similar ways. By not letting them see their Messiah according to the way the scriptures prophesied he would come. And that's how Luke ends this chapter. Let's go to prayer. Father, how grateful are we that we know the truth through your word. And how grateful are we, Father, that you have seen fit to reveal yourself to us through your word. I pray we would never take that for granted, Father, that we would understand as the Bible sits before us now and as it occupies a place in our homes, I pray, we would understand, Father, that it has been given to us so that we might know and recognize and grow closer to our Lord. And Father, for that reason, we understand the more we spend time with it, the more we spend time in your Son's presence, and the more we spend time in His presence, Father, like Mary and Martha, we are putting first the good things. And we understand, Father, that it is your sovereign will that in that time spent before your Son, we would be molded into His image so that we might be that witness you desire us to be. Father, we praise you for that awesome, amazing plan that you have orchestrated through history and brought us into. And Father, may we have that same passion that even that rich man might have in his day of torment. A passion, Father, that others would know the truth. But other, uh, unlike him, Father, I pray we would know the, the right means, the right way, the right manner by which you intend to do that work, that we would bring the word. And in uh, so doing, Father, we might be used mightily to expand your kingdom, to bring others into it as well. Thank you, Father, for our night and the study. And I pray, Father, you bring us back next week according to your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.